Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Again, that sounds very exciting, doesn't it? I hope you'll all be back this evening. If you have your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're looking together at the second chapter of Acts, which is uh, a unique moment in the history of the church. It's a moment that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Prophet Joel had spoken about a time when God would pour out his spirit in an unprecedented way, and uh, a time when God's focus would no longer be just on one people, one family, one nation, the people of Israel. God's focus would now be on the whole world. And that moving of the tectonic plates, that movement in God's purposes, uh, is fulfilled here on the day of Pentecost. What happens on the day of Pentecost is that God comes by his Spirit to dwell in his church. And the purpose of God is mission. The Spirit comes to, to drive the church out in mission. And the purpose of God is to create the church, the people of God. And so the result of, of all that, the, that we see here is in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and so on. In other words, the purpose of Pentecost is mission through the heart of the church. Remember what we said earlier, uh, right at the very beginning of this series, if we're to think of mission, mission comes from the heart of God through the heart of the church into the heart of the world. He never bypasses the church. The church is part of his purpose there's nothing in the New Testament ever considering men and women becoming Christians and then kind of going freelance, becoming evangelists and going and doing their own thing. Now, mission is through the heart of the church. So as we heard just a few moments ago, how does God plan to reach the world with the gospel? It is through new churches, church planting. Uh, my wife and I were involved in church planting in, in the Midlands. Uh, in Worcester and to us it was one of the most productive and wonderful things that we'd ever been engaged in because although it was sacrificial and although we were sending some of our best people the result was that the gospel was being preached in another place and that is in line with what's happening here in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, We we began uh, to look at the sermon uh, that that Peter preaches. The first result of of, uh, of the coming of the Spirit is the preaching of the Word of God. And we looked at that sermon that runs from verse 14 down to verse, uh, really down to verse 36, verse 37. And we saw three things about the sermon, three characteristics. Number one, it is Bible-based. There are 25 verses here. Twelve of them are direct quotation from the Old Testament, and nine of them are an explanation of the quotation. It runs something like introduction, quotation, explanation, quotation, explanation, quotation, explanation, conclusion. Preaching, to have substance, to be owned of God, is the exposition of Scripture. What does the Bible say? So it's Bible-based, and it's Christ-centered, that will be something we recognize this morning as we, we, we see the second part of the sermon, and it is gospel-driven. It's not just a nice little talk. It demands a verdict. What will you do? Call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And then we saw that actually the structure of the sermon is the response to questions. The first question in verse 12, what does this mean? And we saw the answer to that. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's what we concentrated on yesterday from verse 17 down to verse 21. 
what, what does this mean? It means that the Spirit has come. We've entered the last days. We are in the last days. The last day is coming. Therefore, today is the day of salvation. And you can imagine these Jewish people saying, well, that's, that, that's wonderful, but why has that happened? Why, why have we entered the last days? What significant event has taken place? And the second part of the sermon, which we'll be going, looking at in a few moments from verse 22 onwards, is the answer to that. This has happened because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has come in all his glory. He's lived and he's died and he's risen and he's ascended and therefore things have changed. And then, of course, the third question that is articulated, verse 37, brothers, what must we do? And Peter tells them exactly what they must do. So that's the structure of the sermon. Let's read the Word of God. We'll pick it up at verse 22. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that was not to be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Well, David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord 
added to their number daily those who were being saved. And this is the word of the living God. Let's uh, join our hearts together for a moment in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is true and authoritative and powerful. We thank you that it is sufficient. And we thank you, Lord, that it is for each one of us this morning. Lord, we want to pray that today you would speak to us clearly and powerfully and transformingly. Lord, speak in such a way that our lives are changed. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think I mentioned on one of the days that I I began my ministry in a little church that uh, had brethren roots, and before I was called to be the pastor there, uh, we had an itinerant ministry. People would come on a Sunday. Some of them were good. Some of them were, were, were... not so good. Um, we, we had some great guys, I must say. One of them was a farmer, and uh, he, he would turn up on a, on a Sunday, and he would tell us that he'd written his sermon while sitting on the back of his tractor, and, and he'd had lots of time with the Lord and, and so on. I remember my wife and I, we just got married. We'd only been married for a couple of months, and uh, we were fresh from Birmingham. You must remember this. We're from the big city of Birmingham with a population of over a million. On a, on a clear day, you can see your feet. And, uh, and it's a wonderful city. And we had suddenly landed right there in, in rural Wiltshire. And here is this farmer preaching, and it happened to be the day of Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday. So he said, now, uh, now I'm going to talk today about Pentecost. What a difference it made. And all the congregation, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. He said, you know them disciples, before the day of Pentecost, they was like rabbits, weren't they? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And after the day of Pentecost, wow, they'd become like ferrets, hadn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I turned to my, what on earth is he talking about? We're from Birmingham, we haven't got a clue. So I went up to him afterwards. I said, what did you mean? He said, well, rabbits, he said, are the the most timid animals. You know, a rabbit will run a mile. If a rabbit sees a light, it will hide. Whereas a ferret, he said, I've kept ferrets on the farm and and they are the boldest animals you can imagine. You put a ferret down a hole and it won't come back until it's finished off its prey. I've seen a ferret take on a badger. They're so bold, they're so courageous. Now I thought of these stupid men who put them down their trousers. It must be completely insane, do you not think? And yet that's what happens, that's what he said. Look, look Look at Peter. Here is this man who's run a mile. He's terrified. And it's only a little servant girl by the fire who says, aren't you one of his disciples? And he curses Jesus. And he hides. And then something happens. What's happened to Peter? Well, two things have happened to Peter. Number one, he is now convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's met with the risen Lord. For 40 days, he's listened to the teaching of Jesus. And the second thing, of course, is that he's empowered with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has come on this man and has transformed him. And the first result of Pentecost is the preaching of God's Word. Look at verse 14. Look at the courage of Peter. Verse 14, he stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice, he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. And he he speaks about the times, he applies the word of God to their times. And then look at verse 22. And as he's saying verse 22, I kind of picture him almost as as kind of sweeping his hands around and and pointing to them and saying, look, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles and wonders and signs. You saw it with your own eyes. You're without excuse. And this man was handed over to you 
Notice the pronoun there, the, the second person pronoun. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Here is bold preaching. Brothers and sisters, if you read the history of the church, what you should say, what you should recognize is that when revival comes, there is bold preaching. What we need today is bold preaching. Isn't that true? Okay, well, let's, let, let's, let's begin again. What we need today is bold preaching, yes? Authoritative declaration of the Word of God. I was once asked to go and preach at a conference, and it was a particular church that had a very strong liberal tradition. They, they, the, the previous man in the pulpit had been a man called Bishop Spong. Now, has anybody heard of Bishop Spong? Bishop Spong is about as liberal as liberal as you can get. He doesn't believe anything that the Bible says. And so I arrived at this church for this conference. I don't know why the church, I suppose it was the biggest church in the city, and they'd taken it over. And I noticed when I arrived that they had two pulpits, one on one side and one on the other. I'd never been in a church with two pulpits. And I said, why do you have two pulpits? And they said, well, normally, you see, we, we, we have somebody say one thing, and then somebody says the opposite on the other side. So, so our sermons normally on a Sunday are, are, are 20 minutes, 10 minutes saying X, Y, and Z, and, and 10 minutes saying X, Y, and Z are not true, because that's the kind of church we are. And, and, and I said, okay, well, I'm happy to preach, but I'm not going to preach. You can put me at the front. You can stand me on whatever you stand me on, a music stand, because I'm not coming to debate. I'm coming to declare the truth of God's word. I'm coming to speak something which is from heaven. Authoritative, spirit-inspired, spirit-anointed preaching. And if you look at the history of the church, indeed, if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, one thing that is abundantly clear is the Holy Spirit loves preaching. Do you know that? People are often saying, well, you know, we, we had a wonderful time in our church, we didn't have time for the preaching. No, no, the Holy Spirit loves preaching. Because if you read through the Acts of the Apostles, whenever the Holy Spirit comes, there's preaching. Acts chapter uh, 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, Peter preaches, Paul preaches, Stephen preaches, Philip preaches. It is the preaching of God's Word which is owned by God's Spirit. And over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles, it says the Word of God spread, the Word of God grow. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to have confidence in God's Word, don't we? We need to believe that the truth of God's Word is enough. We need to believe that the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Gospel is enough. If the Gospel isn't true, we've got nothing. But we can have absolute confidence in the Word of God, can't we? Absolutely good. So, what does he preach? Well, we looked at the first part. The first question is, is, is what does this mean? The second question, although it's not actually asked, it's anticipated, why has this happened? And he gives them the answer in verses 22 down to verse 20, uh, 36. What is, the, what is the reason why Pentecost has happened? This is the heart of the sermon. And the heart of the sermon is about Jesus. Verse, 32, uh, verse 22, he lived. Verse 23, he died. Verses 24 all the way down to uh, verse 31, he rose again. Verse th oh, sorry, verse 32, he rose again. Verse 33, he's exalted to the right hand of God. The gospel, the gospel, brothers and sisters, is the declaration of events in history that God has performed. The gospel is good news about things that God has done. The gospel is not me sharing my personal experience. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with personal experience. It's good to hear testimonies. I love to hear testimonies, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is not about my feelings. The gospel is not even about what God has done for me in my personal life. 
See, the danger with that is that I can stand up and say, well, God means everything to me. This is what Jesus has done for me. And somebody else can stand up and say, well, let me tell you what Buddha's done for me. Or let me tell you what my humanism has done for me. And, and it's kind of at that level. The gospel does impact personal experience. But actually the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is the preaching of objective historical facts. So whatever we feel and wherever we are in our experience, this is the gospel. This is what God has done. Can you see that? It is good news about Jesus. That's what the world needs to hear. They don't need to hear a new philosophy or a new idea or a new way of living. They need to hear what God has done in Jesus Christ. The whole world needs to hear what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's another philosophy of life. I studied theology at Cambridge, and in the first year of theology at Cambridge, you have to do a year of philosophy. And you can choose ancient philosophy or medieval philosophy or modern philosophy. And like an idiot, I chose modern philosophy. And after a term, I hadn't got a clue what was going on. So I went to my professor and I said, look, I've been studying this for a year and I don't understand it. And he said, oh, that's okay. Nobody understands it. <laughs> and then he said this, and, and, and I've never forgotten, this is a professor of philosophy. He said, modern philosophy is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. Okay? In other words, when you begin with man, what happens? You go round and round and round in circles and you don't get anywhere. And there are all sorts of voices out there with all sorts of humanistic philosophies and all sorts of wonderful ideas that are mesmerizing. We don't have a philosophy. We have something to say to the world. Listen to what God has done. Look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how weak or feeble I am. I've simply got a message. You can, you can preach that message, can't you? This is the kind of response bit. You can preach it, can't you? If you can understand it, you can speak well of Jesus. You can tell, him what, you can tell people what he's done in your life. I certainly do that. But, but ultimately, the gospel is objective facts. So what does he tell us about Jesus? Number one, four things. Number one, Jesus lived. Jesus lived. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, real man, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus was a real man who lived at a real time in a real place in history. He was born as a little baby. He grew. He became a teenager. He became a fully grown man. You saw him with your own eyes. You heard him. He wasn't a mirage. He wasn't a kind, of a, a kind of a man. He was a real flesh and blood man. And yet he was also a unique man. God accredited him. In other words, God, uh, God gave a, a, a evidence that there was something unique about this man. Look at the words which are used in verse 22. Miracles and wonders and signs. The word miracle is the Greek word dunamis. It's a work of power. Now, this man did things that no other man had ever done before. You know, a, a leper came to him, and Luke tells us, Dr. Luke, that the man was full of leprosy, which means that the man would have been marred with leprosy. You would have seen the leprosy in the man's flesh, and Jesus touched him, and the leprosy fled. That was a work of power. Think of the miracles that he did. Think of the wonders. A wonder is something that evokes amazement. You know, he stills the storm and his disciples say, who is this? Who is this person who's amongst us? Only God can still the storm. And yet he speaks and instantly 
the sea is still. Incidentally, it's not just that the, that the wind stopped blowing, it says the sea was still. Have you ever been in a boat going up and down and then the wind stops? It still goes up and down and then it stops after a while. He spoke the word and the storm was stilled. It was a wonder and it was a sign pointing beyond him. And all those miracles associated with Jesus were to authenticate the words that Jesus spoke. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The disciples who were, who were with him for, 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 for uh, three years came to the conclusion this is none other than God amongst us. So John, the beloved disciple, can say the word became flesh. The one who always was God. This one who stands amongst us is a real man and at the same time he is really and truly and fully God. The God-man. Jesus Christ. And salvation depends on the deity and the humanity of Jesus. If he's not fully God, 100%, and if he's not fully man, 100%, we're not saved. We're not saved. I come from the, the beautiful city of Birmingham. Did I mention that to you? And um, in Birmingham, we have a huge uh, uh, hotel called the Hyatt, very posh hotel, and just across the road is the Symphony Hall. And there's a bridge between the Symphony Hall and the Hyatt. And, uh, it, you know, this is for the really posh people. They can, they can go to the Hyatt and they can have their kind of special meals and so on. And then they, they go across the bridge to Symphony Hall and they don't need to meet common people like us. You know, they don't need to meet Brummies even. So, except that they prepared the bridge off-site and they arrived and they put the bridge in place and they discovered that the bridge was about two feet too short. So in other words, it was on the Hyatt side, so in other words, if you wanted to go to the Symphony Hall, you had to kind of come across, hitch up your skirt if you were a lady, or get your, your, kind of your clothes prepared, and jump over two foot. Well, of course they didn't, they had to... You know, what's the point of a bridge? A bridge has to touch both sides, doesn't it? If it doesn't touch both sides, it ain't a bridge. Jesus is the bridge, he is the mediator. He is the one high priest... We don't need another priest. We don't need another mediator. We, we have the God-man. And he takes the hand of a holy God and he takes the hand of a sinful man and he joins them together. And what do we We declare the deity of Christ. We declare the humanity of Christ. We declare that he is the eternal and glorious Son of God. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing like this in any other faith, in any other religion in all of the world. Yeah, we, we get confused, don't we? What about Islam? What about Buddhism? Aren't they good Muslims? Aren't they good Buddhists? Aren't they good Sikhs? All of these different... No religion in all the world has anything like Jesus. Nothing. That's the uniqueness. That's why the gospel has to be preached to the ends of the earth, because there's only one Christ. There's only one Saviour. Hallelujah. He lived. Number two, he died. He died. Look at verse uh, 23. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And I imagine Peter, as he says this, his hand kind of sweeps out because these are the men who 50 days before had called for his crucifixion. You crucified him. The Jewish nation, you people here gathered in for this festival, you are the ones who put him to death. You crucified the Lord of glory. Notice he says two things about the cross. The first thing he says is that this was an act of human disobedience and evil. I think it was Chuck last night was talking about uh, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. The Bible takes human responsibility very seriously. 
When the Jews cried out for the crucifixion of Christ, they were responsible for their actions. When the Romans, the wicked men who took him and nailed him to the cross, they were responsible for their actions. This is the definition almost, if you like, of what sin is. Sin is the rejection of God. This is the greatest sin in the history of the world. God becomes flesh and human beings take him and they nail him to a cross. What is sin? Sin is me saying, I will live without God. I want God to be dead because I want to be my own God. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, um, described sin like this. He said, if you want to imagine how bad sin is, think of those men who, who mocked Christ. I think it was Herod's soldiers, wasn't it? They, they took a blindfold and they put it across his eyes so he couldn't see. And then one after another, they came and they knelt and they punched him in the face. Bang, bang, bang. If you're a prophet, if you're the Christ, tell us, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? Fist after fist after fist. And Bunyan says, that's sin. Sin is a fist in the face of God. Every sin is a fist. I do not want God's will or God's way or God's law. I want God to be dead. I will rule in my own life. That's that's what Adam and Eve in essence do. You will be as God, knowing the difference between good and evil. It's not just that they would know the good and evil, they would say what was good and evil. They would make God and evil for themselves. So the first thing he says about the cross of Christ is that it was an act of human sin and rebellion. The second thing he says, it was the purpose of God. It was the eternal purpose of God. It was the purpose of God going back that he would give his son. The cross is not an accident. Did any of you ever go to the Millennium Dome? Anybody? Oh, not many of you. You're pretty wise in Northern Ireland. But (laughs) there was a a part of the Millennium Dome known as the Faith Zone. And it had the different religions of the world. And do you know what it said in the Christian area? This is what it said in the little Christian area. It's supposed to represent the Christian faith. Jesus Christ was a good man who died tragically young. <laughs> a good man who died tragically young. The death of Jesus was foreordained in the mind and the heart of God before the foundation of the world. The one who died on the cross was the beloved of the Father on whom the Father set the sins of all his people and then poured out his wrath. Brothers and sisters, the cross is central to our salvation. Without the cross, there is no hope and there is no heaven and there is no forgiveness of sin. The cross is vital to the purpose of God, vital to our salvation. So Paul says to the Corinthians, the sophisticated, that the most sophisticated city in the world next to Athens, I came and I decided, although I was weak and feeble and frail, I decided to do one thing, to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I I first started preaching down in Wiltshire, I used to go to this little church where there was an old boy who was the church secretary. And the first time I arrived, he was called Mr. Marsh. And he said, hello, I'm Mr. Marsh. I'm the church secretary. And uh, if the Lord spares me on my next birthday, I shall be 97 years old. And then I came back the next year, year, and he said, oh, I'm Mr. Marsh. If the Lord spares me, I shall be 98. And so it went on until one year he said, next year, if the Lord spares me, I shall be 100 years old, and then I'm going to retire. (laughs) Which I thought was a little bit, you know, lax, really, but never mind. (laughs) He took you into the back, and he would always pray the same prayer. Always say the pray the same prayer. Oh God, he'd say, "Thank you for bringing this man to preach." And now, show us Jesus. We want to see Jesus because he is the darling of heaven. 
He is the darling of the Father's heart, and He's our darling too. Show us Jesus. And He is the darling of heaven, the darling of the angels, but more than that, the darling of the Father's heart. And during His life on earth, He speaks of His Father, Abba, Father, 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 187 times, Father, my Father, my Father. And as they nail him to the cross and the agony begins, he prays still, oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then they lift him up. And suddenly at noon, darkness descends. Darkness in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. And the Father who has walked with him for all those 33 years pours out his wrath upon his own son. And the Father turns his face away. And out of the darkness, he doesn't cry, Father. He says, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, that's the cross. That's our hope. Don't you love him this morning? Isn't he precious to your hearts this morning? What do we preach to the world? What does the world need to know? He needs to know that Jesus lived. He needs to know that Jesus died. But it also needs to know that Jesus rose from the dead. And this next section, which really forms that the heart of this sermon from verse 34 to verse 32 is about the resurrection. There are 15 verses in this section, and nine of them are about the resurrection because the resurrection is the crux. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. Yes, he died, but praise God, he rose again. The word agony there in Greek is a word which is often used to describe birth pangs. You know, when a woman goes into labor, she begins the birth pangs, the agony of death, the the birth pangs of death could not hold him in. You know know what it's like, ladies, when when, when you're pregnant and and you come to the ninth month and and suddenly this kind of God-given desire to push comes. Is is that right? You you, You must have the baby. And, and, and your husband says to you, well, are you okay? No, get me to the hospital. Whatever, get me there. So, so, so you sit in the car and you, you're driving along and you say, oh, it's quite a nice day today. Instead of going to the hospital, why don't we go down to the beach and, and have a nice cup of tea by the beach? And your wife says, get me to the hospital because this baby is coming. And you say, well, hang on a bit, just come. Just, just hold on a little bit, dear. It's such a, no, no, no. When the baby has to come, the baby has to come. Isn't that right? I hope I'm not being too indelicate, but you know, when the baby's coming, the baby's coming. And, and there's nothing that can hold it in. And what it's using there is the picture of death. When Jesus was to come out of death, nothing could hold him back. Nothing on the universe could stop him. He's coming out of the agony of death, and he's going to conquer death, and nothing in this world can stop him, because he's the living Lord. Hallelujah. He has conquered death. Death is over. Death is finished because of Jesus. He has stood on its head and he has trampled it underfoot. Yes, we're going to die. Of course we're going to die. But we die in hope because Jesus has conquered death. And so this Jesus who lived and died rose again and in the next few verses he proves it. He proves it, first of all, from the Old Testament. Look at verse 25. Uh, he gives us a quotation there in verse 25 down to uh, verse 28. It's from Psalm 16. It's David speaking about his hope of, 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 of resurrection. Uh, Verse 27, for example, you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You have filled me with joy in your presence. Now, 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 he takes that as a messianic psalm, a psalm that's speaking about the Messiah. 
Look at the, the, the logic of Paul, uh, Peter in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is to this day. Here, so, so maybe he points onto the hillside and you look over there, his tomb is there. David didn't rise from the dead. So this psalm can't be about David. So who was it about? He was a prophet, verse 20, uh, 30, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor was his body seed decayed. In other words, the Old Testament said this. You should have realized this. You should have understood this. David predicted that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would die and that the Messiah would rise from the dead. So the Old Testament predicts it, and, and, and as well as that, here is our testimony. Look at verse 32. Uh, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of that fact. We have seen it ourselves. Let me tell you two things about the resurrection this morning, two things that we need to grasp about the resurrection. Number one, you ready? This is important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a physical, literal, historical event in history. Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead. You get that? And you agree with that? Good, good. The modern theologians, the liberal theologians, speak of the resurrection as a kind of an existential experience. You know what it's like? You're kind of walking along the road, it's been a bad winter and you're pretty depressed. Maybe you've had this kind of sad seasonal affective disorder and you're pretty low and then, and then suddenly as you're walking along the road, suddenly the sun comes out and you see the daffodils blowing, and you see the little sheep jumping about on the hillside, and suddenly your faith rises, and you have this wonderful kind of existential feeling. Isn't, isn't life wonderful? And the liberal theologians, going back to a man called Bultmann and others like him, say, well, that's what happened to the disciples. Of course, people don't rise from the dead. We know that. But they had this kind of glorious existential experience. They, they kind of experienced their, their, their faith rising again. Now, can I tell you, as far as theology is concerned, there, there is the, the, the correct uh, theological nomenclature for that. What we describe that view as, as is, is complete and utter garbage. <laughs> it's complete nonsense. Complete no- the only thing I feel when I see a lamb jumping on the, on the, on the, the only thing I think about when I see a lamb jumping on the hillside is mint sauce. But, you know, what happened, what happened was literal, physical, dateable. Jesus really died. Death happens when the soul leaves the soul or the spirit leaves the body. He physically died. His body was in the tomb for three days. His soul went to be with his father. And after three days, the soul and the body were reunited and Jesus stood in a real body before them. It was so real that they could touch it. They could recognize it. He, he, he gave them some, they gave him some food to eat. He ate the food. Now, it was a transformed body, it was a resurrection body, it would never age, it would never, it would never die again, it had new properties, but it was the same body, the same body. And brothers and sisters, we don't need to be embarrassed about that. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. Um, someone's put it like this, what is the evidence for the re- resurrection? The empty tomb, the deflated shroud, the angelic testimony, the transformed disciples, the uh, elated witnesses, the empowered church, the powerful preaching, the outpoured spirit, the dedicated day, the confounded enemies, the convicted sinners, the conquered world, the noble army of martyrs, and, and a Christian, con- uh, Christian church in every continent. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. 
and I studied theology at Cambridge, we had to study the liberals. One of them was a man called Ernst Renan. He was a French theologian. And uh, he said this, I don't believe in the resurrection. Resurrection doesn't take place. If I'd been there on resurrection evening, if I'd seen him with my own eyes, if I'd heard him with my own ears, if I'd touched him with my own hands, I still wouldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, there you go. Some men are so open-minded, their brains have dropped out. <laughs> it was said of one theologian, he was in two minds. One was lost and the other was out looking for it. You know? No, no, he rose from the dead. And this is history. And this is vital history. Because the second point I want to make is that our whole faith turns on this. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the Christian faith is not true. The fact that he rose on the, from the dead has changed everything. The world is different now. It, it, you, know, you, you know all about the Titanic here in, in Northern Ireland. You imagine the Titanic, all the most about to hit the... the, 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 the um, that's it, the iceberg, okay? I was going to say letters for a minute, but the iceberg, and, and it's almost going to hit it, and, and somebody manages to turn it round. I mean, lots of children's talks and gospel illustrations would be lost, but never mind. The, the Titanic would be sad. It's as if this world is heading towards destruction. And one man, Jesus Christ, turns it round. He takes death by, the, by, the, by the, the throat, as it were, and he struggles with it, and he strains it, and he conquers death. And what does that mean? When we die, it's not the end. We lay asleep in the grave. Our souls are with the Lord, and one day we'll be raised bodily from the dead. And we will be with the Lord forever. The glorious hope of believers is the resurrection of the body. Because Jesus is the first fruits. Barry was the, one of the first men converted in, in my ministry in Wiltshire. He's had a tough time in the last year or so. He had cancer of the, of the throat and they had to remove his tongue. And, and then it, it, it went further and so they removed most of... Uh, 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 of his digestive system. I went to see him just three or four days before he died. And uh, at that point, it was difficult for him to talk, and they were feeding him through a tube. And he said to me, Pastor, he said, I'm never going to taste anything again. I'm never going to have any food again. They've told me this is, this is the end. They're just keeping me, keeping the pain up by. This is almost the end. And I'm never going to eat again. And then, and then, with tears in his eyes, he had this great big smile and, and finding it difficult to talk. He said, but pastor, I'm not anxious because very soon I will be sitting down at the table of the king. Very soon I will see my saviour and he will raise this weak and feeble body in resurrection power. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And here's the fourth thing. Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father in glory. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that he's poured out, that you now see and hear. How do we know that Christ is exalted to the Father's right hand? Because he's poured out the Holy Spirit, just as he promised. For David uh, said, verse 34, uh, that he ascended to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ, exalted to the right hand of God, exalted above the heavens. That wonderful picture in Revelation 4 and 5, the Father who sits on the throne, and then the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, and the whole of heaven erupts with praise and erupts with adoration because Jesus is Lord. 
Yeah, we live in a world where it seems that, that, that so many areas of the world in our own culture, in our own land, in, in, in different lands, are in darkness. But here's the great truth of Scripture. Jesus is Lord. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And one day, every tongue will confess him King of glory now. And brothers and sisters, we're on the victory side. Isn't that wonderful? He is our Lord. He's conquered for us. He's victorious for us. The story once of a, a, a young lady. You know, this is, the, this is the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, which was a very important date in British history. Of a young French woman who fell in love with a young Englishman. And they got married. And when, when they got married, she not only changed her name, she became a British citizen. And they said to her, now what's the difference now that you're a British citizen? She said, well, it's very interesting. Yesterday, I was on the defeated side in the Battle of Waterloo. Today, I'm on the victory side. <laughs> what happens when you become a Christian? You're joined to Christ. You're joined to Christ. You're, you're in Christ. You are chosen in Christ. You're joined to him. And he is victorious, and so are you, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Glorious. Glorious. What a sight. And so the gospel is about Jesus. And they ask the obvious question, what must we do? What must we do? And what is the answer? Well, he gives them two commands and two promises. Verse 38, repent and be baptized. Now, now repent there. We often say, well, isn't what about faith? Well, they've already expressed faith. What must we do? It speaks later on those who believed. In the Bible, faith and repentance go together. You can't have real biblical faith without repentance. You can't have real repentance that doesn't flow from faith. So, so when the command is there to repent, it, it assumes faith. Sometimes that's kind of Bible shorthand. When, when Pete Paul speaks to the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That assumes repentance as well. The tense of the Greek word verb there literally means do it and do it now. Turn now and be baptized. Now, I'm a Baptist, so... Uh, I'm not going to preach on baptism this morning. That would be dreadful, wouldn't it? You know, Spurgeon tells of a Baptist minister who, who could do nothing but preach on baptism. Every sermon was about baptism. He was preaching once on, on uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the call of Adam. You know, when the Lord comes to Adam, where are you, Adam? He said, I have three points this morning. Number one, where was Adam? Number two, how did he get there? Number three, a brief word on baptism. <laughs> you know? now, now, the one thing that the Bible is very clear about, whether you're a Peter Baptist or a Creed Baptist, and we're not going into that this morning, but whatever, the, whatever your view is, baptism's important. Because church is important. What happens to these people? They are joined to Christ, and then they're joined to the church. You can't be joined to Christ and not be joined to the church. Church is not an optional extra. Baptism is the sign of being joined to the body of Christ. So what happens? You hear the message, you're converted, and you become part of the church. If this morning you're a freelance Christian, you're not part of a local church, then you need to be part of a local church. I, I love to do children's talks, and, 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 and sometimes when I'm not sure about a children's talk, I ask my wife. I had this children's talk that I wanted to try it with the children. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the front, and I'm going to produce a great big long knife, a really sharp knife, and I'm going to say to the children, who would like me to chop off my finger? Now, you know what kids are like, pretty barbaric. Shall I do that? What do you think? Do you think that would go down well? She said, are you insane? Are you mad? Half the kids would be traumatized, and the other half would be so disappointed that you didn't actually do it. So don't be so stupid. The point of the talk was this. What happens if I cut off my little finger? Well, my body's in pain, really painful. But my little finger is finished. I mean, I can, I can freeze it. I can put it in the freezer and bring it out from time to time and show it to kids as a children's talk. But 
there you go. Wouldn't work. The, the, the finger is dead. What happens when you become a believer? You believe, you repent, and you are part of the church. Straight away, verse 42, they dedicated themselves. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. So what is the command? The command, number one, is to believe, number two, or repent, number two, to be baptised, to be part of the church. What are the promises? The forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice this is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. This isn't just for particular brands of Christians. This is for everybody. He forgives our sin. He removes our sin. He puts it behind his back. Did I mention I I, I came from Birmingham? Did I ever tell you that? Outside Birmingham, there's some hills called the Licky Hills. And if you stand on the top of the Licky Hills, when you look in one direction, you can see uh, the beautiful rolling hills of Herefordshire. If you do a 180 and you turn in the opposite direction, you can see the city of Birmingham like the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But you can't see them both at the same time. If you're looking at the city, you can't see the hills. If you want to see the hills, you have to turn around and put the city behind your back. When we become Christians, God takes our sin and he puts it behind his back and he clothes us in the perfect righteousness of Christ and he looks at us in Christ. He doesn't see you as neutral this morning. Justification by faith doesn't mean that God gives you a second chance to earn your salvation. No, he clothes you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Believe and repent and you will receive the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, and you will receive the gift, the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming to dwell within every Christian. And the result of Pentecost, a sermon is preached, the word is proclaimed, and the church is born. Verse 42, they committed themselves to the church. What is evangelism? It is from the heart of God, through the heart of the church, into the heart of the world. The Lord added to their number 3,000. Look at the last verse, verse 47. And the Lord added daily those who are being saved. You can't bypass the church. You You can't do without the church. Evangelism is from the heart of God through the heart of the church into the heart of the world. And the evidence, the evidence of the resurrection, the evidence, the overwhelming evidence of the resurrection is that the church of Jesus Christ continues to die to preach the gospel to a lost world. Christ is risen. And that first morning, Mary goes into the garden. She's followed him into the darkest night. And she meets him on the most glorious morning. Miriam, he says, Rabboni. And he's risen from the dead. And this is the one that we worship this morning. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it's not just our feelings or our experiences or, or, or a kind of a general philosophy. Thank you that it's truth, it's facts, it's history. Thank you that Jesus really lived the Son of God, fully God and fully man. Thank you that he died as an atonement for sinners there on the cross, bearing the wrath of God so that God could turn his face away from us and from our sin and smile upon us in grace and mercy. Thank you that Jesus is risen today, the Lord of life, the conqueror of death. Thank you that he's exalted to the Father's right hand. Thank you that he's building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And thank you that our mission now is to proclaim this message 
to the ends of the earth. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.